Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, C4. Really glad you're uh, hanging out with us today. Again, a hello to our online audience, again, wherever you might be. Uh, before I get in today, I just want to say a huge congratulations to one of our pastors, Josh McCabe, who's one of our young adults pastor, got married last night, so he's off on his honeymoon, so just uh, congratulations to him, Just great. And uh, yeah, we're really excited about that. Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, hard copy or online, we've got Wi-Fi in here. We'd ask you to turn or turn on to uh, Romans, uh, the book of Romans, chapter 8, as Wayne just uh, prayed out of. We're going to be in the second half today, Romans 8, 19 and forward. Uh, the word I would use when both my girls came into the world through C-section is nervous. The words I would use after they came into the world is exhaustion and joy. The difference between the two, though connected, is huge. I don't do very well with blood. You all know that, right? I've shared that. And I didn't know what a placenta was. Now I do. I'm thoroughly disturbed. I never want to see one again. A side note. Anyway, um, <laughs> but that exhaustion and joy uh, afterwards is amazing. Some of you women are going, exhaustion, please, you're a man. What do you know what you're talking about? <laughs> but it's true. That image is actually the image Paul chooses to use when speaking out of the second half of uh, Romans 8 or writing it. Living through the pain and messiness of labor and then experiencing genuine joy later. One person wrote these words, many of us have pictures of our wives after they've delivered children. Uh, typically, the baby is in the mother's arms, she's radiant but a little tired. None of us, he writes, have pictures to show our wives in labor. You don't reach into your wall and say, let me show you a picture, or turn your iPad on and move over. And let me show you a wife groaning in labor. Isn't agony just terrific and beautiful? He writes, creation will one day be delivered. And the difference between then and now is the difference between agony and coming ecstasy. And that is exactly what will happen. What will happen is nature one day will be able to produce as it was designed to be producing. Uh, pestilence and danger will be removed. We as Christians are going to see the day when redemption happens everywhere. And that's exactly where Paul goes in Romans 8. Paul, in the first part of the chapter, took us to such heights, if you're a Christian, as he reminded us again and again of what God has done for us because he loves us. We are not condemned by God anymore. We are not controlled by our sin anymore. We are filled with God's own spirit. We have been bought. We have been covered. Paul cried out that we have a calling father, a substituting brother, a residing, empowering comforter who is the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. We are adopted, he said. We are children. We are co-heirs with Christ. Christ. And all of this, all of this gives these two things that are longed for and fought for and fantasized over by every human being, every corporation and every government, security and a given identity that can never be eroded ever again. He says simply, we are given the power to be like Jesus in the sense of walk after him because the same spirit that empowered him is in us. But at the end of last week, the issue of suffering then came up. All the pain, all the crap and garbage of life. And the question we ask is, how do we reconcile all the above statements with the world that we live in right now? Groans and glory, death and resurrection, pain and promise. These are the questions that genuine Christians struggle with. 
Paul is about to say to us today, God himself will provide all we need as we wait in the middle between agony and ecstasy. I love that Paul does not hide the fact that believers suffer. He doesn't play games. He doesn't build utopian ideals. He faces it right on. And so with prophetic and prophetic and poetic impulse, Paul gives our world hope that is genuinely needed. He, with pastoral tenderness and prophetic force, declares that anyone who will listen today that this is truth, that creation in its entirety will be freed and restored. All creation, he's about to write, waits for and longs for Jesus' followers to become resurrected. Creation longs for a divine interference, which is not about the wholesale destruction of the the present material universe, but the transformation and restoration of the universe back to the way it used to be in Eden. And yet, as we wait, we suffer. It's what he calls in the scriptures groaning, but the groaning is not going to be forever. He starts like this in verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. All of reality, Paul says, is craning its neck, is stretching forward, is waiting to regain what was lost and eaten. It was Phillips that translated it this way. The whole creation is on its tiptoes waiting to see the wonderful sight of the sons and daughters of God finally coming into their own. See, when Christians are resurrected from the dead, then all creation also will be made right. It's like a two-step dance move. We get resurrected, and then creation is made whole. But right when he declares this, then he throws us back hard, almost gives us biblical whiplash. He takes us all the way back to chapter 3 of Genesis, and he reminds us that all the groaning, all the trouble that we watch on the television or online, even in the last 24 hours, all of it at its root is found in something called sin. It is the consequence of our rebellion, and it not only affected us as human beings, but it actually touched and marred all of creation. For the creation, verse 20, was subjugated to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjugated it in hope. Creation bursts forth with color when God said, let it be. Fragrance, food, it was a kind place. It was a harmonious place in the truest sense. It was a generous place to those who ran it. But then, as we know, many of us, the command was given by God, you may not eat. The command was needed because it affirms our innate right for choice because we are made in the image of he who invented choice. But we decided to go the opposite direction. In our free will, we ate. Not out of love, not out of relationship, but out of another word, rebellion. And it was that solitary act that brought all that was very good to be marred and maimed and marked and then continually to this day misused. Is there any hope? Is there any hope then? Is there any real future? Are the atheistic evolutionist thinkers of our day right? There is no end. There is no turning things back. All things are lost. Lost forever. No redemption. No recreation. No outside rescue to make things right. It's just us. No, they are dead wrong. Scripture declares in verse 21, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. God is going to make all things right. A new heaven and, I remind you, a new earth. Bondage and decay will end. There is hope. There is light on the horizon that spans history itself. One day there will be no more shadows, no more pollution, no more war, no more abuse, no more abandonment, no more hatred of God or his truth. 
truths. No more tears, no more misunderstanding, no more slavery, no more family breakdown, no more addiction, no more conflict, no more sickness, and here it is, no more death. Is that hope? You bet you it is. That's hope. He continues and says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. I now understand in detail what that means. Creation became a sufferer like us and was imbued with futility, decay, and death. As one wrote, so now at times, the forces of nature themselves seem to work against themselves as well as against us. Everywhere our images meet, everywhere our eyes eat images of death and decay. There's the scourge of barrenness, the fury of the elements, the destructive instinct of animals. The very laws that even govern vegetation brings a somber hue to nature. The animal world was now filled and invaded with fear and violence. The loveliest scenes in nature, though beautiful today, still are witness to bloody horror, flood, Hurricane, drought, tornado, blight, avalanche, earthquake, they stalk the earth. And humanity's abuses exacerbate the disharmony. He writes, I have lived in a city where the air is too thick to breathe, and when I walk on the beach, I find tar on my feet. It is probably true, he writes, that if humanity continues to go on this path unhindered, the last living person will stand on the edge of a petroleum-clogged sea, while behind it rises the twisted skeletons of his once great cities. The earth, Paul writes, groans like a woman in labor. It desperately wants to be delivered. And we, sitting here today, and all of us as humans, We're not just part of creation, we're central in creation, and we groan also. As one writes, tragedy of financial ruin, broken relationships, natural disasters, terminal illness, and then something we all experience called death. More, however, we as Christians groan as the drag of flesh keeps us from enjoying complete and uninterrupted intimacy with our Creator. Yet Paul is going to say, we also are the first fruits of a coming, redeemed creation. Because when the Holy Spirit moved into us, when we said yes to Jesus, he brought the beginning tastes of a new heaven and a new earth. He says in verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. First fruits in Greek is first installment. Initial down payment. Because the Holy Spirit has brought the new heavens and new earth into our heart as a beginning, that is the first installment of what is to come. Yet despite this, Paul says, listen closely, we still groan inwardly. What an honest picture of the human experience. What an honest picture of the Christian walk. We have hope and we hurt at the same time. The lie, and it is the right word, the lie perpetuated by many churches today and leaders that if you become a Christian, you will become wealthy and have prosperity and health is broken right here by St. Paul's honest declaration. We still groan, he says. Another pen, these words, our lives consist of groans, don't they? We groan because of the ravages that sin makes upon our lives and the lives of those we love. We groan because we see the possibilities that are not being captured or employed. That's called lost dreams. We groan because we see gifted people who are wasting their lives, and we'd love to see something else happen. 
We groan in our spirits. We groan in disappointment. We groan in something called bereavement. We groan in sorrow. We groan physically because of pain and limitation. Life, the person writes, is a great deal of groaning, isn't it? And yet, Paul is about to say, as we groan, there is hope. Because we actually are members of another kingdom. We do actually live in a foreign land. We are behind enemy lines, and the redemption of our bodies is coming. As Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead, so anyone who trusts in Jesus, who has the Spirit, also will be resurrected in the same day, and in the same way. Verse 24, for in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we yet do not have, we wait for it patiently. Notice what he said. This is important this morning. Salvation, he writes, is already ours. We do not fully see or understand or experience the full effects or extent of Jesus' work in our life or creation. But we have certain hope and we wait patiently like every generation of Christians has since Jesus' ascension. That what was lost in the beginning will be brought back. We are waiting to see the beginning of the end which brings us back to that perfect beginning. Paul says very clearly, creation groans. We groan. But then Paul goes even farther. He says to the shock of many, God himself, the Spirit of God, groans too. The Holy Spirit, I remind you, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that hovered at the beginning of creation and brought forth creation by the command and the will of the Father and the Son, the same Spirit who is called the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life, our great advocate, Paul says, he groans too. In the same way, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we don't know what we ought to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Intercession in the last 30 years has become a churchy word a lot of people use. It simply means to come between. It is the act of intervention through prayer. So when we don't know what to say anymore, when, when we don't know what to do, Paul declares to us that God himself prays for us. He groans. These signs should be such a gift. These sighs and groans should be such an encouragement because we now can understand that God knew that we would head in this direction. One wrote and said these groans, of course, could mean speaking in tongues, but truly it covers the longings and aspirations which well up in the depths of the Spirit and cannot be imprisoned within the confines of everyday words. We all, if you're a Christian, have had times when we don't know how to pray anymore. There's no words left, right? No feelings of hope. No, worship doesn't do it. Scripture doesn't do it. We don't feel God's power. We don't feel God's presence. Christians just bother us all the time. It's, uh. Right there. At that moment, in that sorrow, that is when he expresses the thoughts and feelings we cannot articulate. Those things that we desperately want to say, but almost seem blocked to say. A.T. Robinson wrote, the Holy Spirit lays hold, grabs our weakness along with us, and carries his part of the burden, like the image of two men carrying two sides of one large log. Another wrote, the Holy Spirit does not give armchair advice. He rolls up his sleeves and helps us bear our weakness. This, he writes, this is real help. 
But see, we really begin to understand the depth of this statement, moving it beyond just claiming it in some churchy way that has no meaning. When you begin to think that the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf, because like the Son of God himself, the Spirit has actually taken, ready, the problem of evil upon himself voluntarily. Why? Well, where do you think he resides? Us. The Spirit of God groans because he also lives in us. And since he resides in us and we have the ability, I remind you, to grieve him, he bears the sins of the world in a very different way. Yes, he convicts us of sin. Yes, he leads us into all truth. Yes, he suffers along with us and comes alongside of us. But if that was never enough, then Paul reminds us of something else. He then reminds us that he prays and never forget that the Holy Spirit will never pray a wrong prayer, never be misplaced, never be tainted by sin or ego or want or politics. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Notice as Christians, we are called saints, holy ones, those set apart. It's those people that he prays for. Another preached, he loves us so much more than we love ourselves, and therefore he groans along with us. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit possesses power we just do not possess. At the end of our strength, he writes, we groan and that's it, period. There's nothing more to do. But the Spirit, He groans with purpose. He intercedes on our behalf, praying with wisdom that we do not possess, requesting for us what we're even too short-sighted to perceive. And most important of all, He groans His intercessions in heaven to bring our mind and the will of the Father together. It's after all of this, then this powerful, powerful quoted verse is written. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let the language sit in, especially if you've done the journey for a while. We know, not we hope, not we suppose, not we wish, we knew, we know. Because the character of God and the promises of God, we actually know that those who love him, all things will work out. Those who love him, those who have relationship with the Father through Jesus and the Spirit. But let's camp here for a moment, shall we? All will work out for good. If you're jaded just a little, you'd like to put your hand up right now, wouldn't you? Excuse me, Lord? I don't see this in my life right now. Does this mean that everything's going to be good in our life? Because that's where a lot of pastors take this. No. This is about ultimate good. See, we have hope now, but ultimate hope comes in something called the resurrection. This promise is connected to a word called full redemption. Our salvation is rooted in eternity. Verse 28, 29, and 30 are centrally about what is happening and what is about to happen. Uh, Many theologians have called this net set of verses the great golden chain that show us our salvation. See, he says that all things will work out for our ultimate good. And then he says, because we've been called according to his purpose. Called. We are never called, by the way, by what we do or who we are. And it's not even about our purpose, it's about his. It's a God act through and through. Jesus said these offensive words in Matthew twenty-two fourteen: For many are invited, but few are called or chosen. F.F. Bruce wrote, the call is called an effectual call. 
which is the work of God's Spirit convicting us of our sin and misery, then allowing us to understand Jesus, renewing our wills, then he persuades and he even enables us to understand and know Jesus, which is offered freely in the gospel. He says, we will see things ultimately work out for good for those who love him. Now, I'm going to stop right here and I'm going to say this. The next few verses are very exciting, very comforting, very, very divisive, and everyone disagrees on them. Everyone got their thinking caps on? No, seriously, please, have mercy on me. Here we go, verse 29. For those that God foreknew, here we go, he also predestined to be, in the, uh, to be conformed into the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and then, of course, sisters. Now, the word for new is a very exciting and great idea. It's a beautiful gift. Now, honest Christians disagree with each other. And I love what Augustine said so long ago. We must have unity on the essentials and charity where we disagree on secondary issues. We're all good there so far? Okay. Some say, yeah, ha, 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 yeah, okay. Some say this means that God knows what every person's decision will be to believe or not believe on Jesus. So God calls us according to what we will decide in the future. Others go, oh, no, 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 that's way too human-centric. This is a God thing. Becoming a Christian ultimately is rooted in God's free choice, and those who God calls, well, he in the end will eternally secure them. So that's the two different opinions on this. So the question is, John, is it box number one or box number two? Some of you go, I don't care. You need to, actually. Well, I would say this. Though I love my friends deeply, it's absolutely box number two. And let me tell you why. It comes from the word itself. The word itself for new by definition is to intimately know someone. It's an active word. It's not an observational word. It's someone doing something. The word describes a scrutinizing knowledge that goes beyond mere awareness. The verb in first century Rome was a euphemism for sexual intimacy shared between a married couple. Let me demonstrate carefully, by the way. Um, First thing. I know Joanna. I know Joanna. That's the difference. That's exactly what the euphemism is. I, of course, know Joanna, but Joanna and I, we know each other. (laughs) To foreknow is to intimately have given relationship. It was used by God in the Old Testament between him and Israel, Amos 3.2. You only have I known, chosen, sympathized with, loved, out of all the families of the earth. Paul means here to choose beforehand. It's not a, I know what you're going to do, so I'll choose you. No, no, it's him choosing. God has done all this, and it secures our needed eternal glory. This calling, though, everyone ready? Only happened after the fall, not before the fall. Remember what we learned back in chapter 5. Everyone's thinking cap still on. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in the same way, death came to all people because all sinned. Remember what we learned. All have sinned in Greek is a complete action in the past. It's a complete past tense deal. Paul was teaching us that all human beings have sinned as a complete act in one point of history, no exceptions. Paul is saying this, all of us personally, Jonathan David Thompson, living in 2011, sinned in Adam. We were there by proxy. 
One wrote, this view teaches that Adam represents the whole human race. He stands as the head of the human race. He was placed in the garden not just to act only for his own self, but all his future descendants. Just as the federal government has a chief spokesperson who's the head of a nation, so Adam is the federal head of all of us. The chief idea is this. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When we sinned, Adam sinned. His fall is our fall. Our fall is his fall. When God punished Adam, he also punished us. Now most of us, even in church, really get angry at this. We bristle at this. Our modern tendency is me. That's not true. My choices will determine who I will be and what I will do and how successful. This isn't fair. When it comes to salvation, it's a different conversation. See, we all had free choice in Adam. And we all lost free choice in Adam. God in his mercy, Scripture teaches, comes and calls some back to himself. All of us had the choice for relationship or alienation, heaven and hell, back in Adam, and we all together chose the latter. But in his mercy, Scripture teaches, he calls some of us back. And out of that foreknowing, then Paul says he predestined us. The word means to set apart, to limit, to appoint, to determine ahead of time. Paul then says those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, well, he glorified them. Since we're called, then we get justified. Justified means though we're guilty, we're no longer guilty because of Jesus. And then glorified is even more exciting. I learned it this week. The word is also written in the past tense. It means that since we've been called and we become Christians, we are in a right standing with God, eternally secure right now. It's a past tense thing. It's happened. Let me put it this way. God called me. I came to faith. I believe. So I am called. Now, out of all the controversy in that, and all the books that have been written, and all the disagreements, and all the fights that happen, it's interesting that most of us don't ever get to verse 31. Paul's a pastor. So he says, what shall we say in the response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He says, if God loves us so much, will he not give us everything else? How big, how grand, how powerful, how long, how deep is the love of God for us? Philip Melanchthon, Luther's right hand during the Reformation, sort of the first systematic thinker in the movement, was laying dying in 1560. All of us one day will be on our own deathbed. And it's interesting what people say just before they die if they have the chance. I read this week that Philip Melanchthon, as he was breathing his last breath, cried out, verse 32. Read it. That's the last words he said before he died. See, that's faith. That's confidence. That's hope that you can never buy or never earn or never get from somewhere else. Amen? And if this is true, Paul says, if everything I've taught you is just true, then Paul declares with almost a defined defiance in a world fueled by sin and run by the so-called prince of the air. Who then will bring a charge against those who God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is going to give me an official summons to go into the heavenly court? Who is going to tell me that I am no longer God's? God is more powerful, all-knowing. God has already made me right. Satan, what charge do you bring against me? Who is it he that condemns? 
Christ Jesus who died, verse 34, more than that, he who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. See that verse? He substituted his life for us. He was resurrected for us. He ascended for us. And he intercedes for us. The Son of God is our advocate and is always looking out for our welfare. Always, right now. And after all of these statements about Jesus and the Father calling us and the work of the Spirit and groaning and power and hope, then Paul, by the power of the Spirit, writes one of the most grand statements written, penned in human history. And truly one of the best statements all the way between Genesis and Revelation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? It's written... For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than, and I found this out, super conquerors in Greek through him who loved us. I am convinced death, life, angels, demons, the present, future, nor any power, no, no height, no depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, good. Oh, good. Amen. Awesome. He declares to the defiance and rationality of the world, death will not pull me away from God. The allurements of life will not do it. Nothing demonic, nothing cosmic, good or bad, nothing political, nothing spiritual or otherwise, nothing in heaven and nothing in hell. No disappointment, no neurosis, no psychosis, not even insanity will pull me away from God. No disease, no broken romance, no lost dreams, no financial crisis, no accidents, no shame, no regret, no persecution, no lack of food, no lack of freedom, nothing done to me or anything I have done to others, no sin, hear this, no sin, large or small, public or private, not old age, not disability, nothing in time, nothing in the universe or space, nothing can sever me from the love given to me by God the Father who has called me, Jesus who has died for me, and the Spirit of God who seals me. This, my friends, is power. It's power. And when we begin to understand the power of this, it does change life. It was the great bishop of the third century who was in Istanbul. It used to be called Constantinople. Uh, John Chrysostom. He was called the golden mouth, the great preacher of his age. He was called before the Roman emperor. True story. And he was told to renounce his Christian faith. He started and said these words, the, threatened, the emperor threatened him and said, I am going to banish you for life if you remain a Christian. Listen to what he said. This is recorded in history. Right to the emperor's face. No, sir, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. Mm, okay. The emperor says, then I'll kill you. He says, you cannot do that either, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Well, then he says, I will take away your wealth. No, you cannot do that either, for my treasure is in heaven, and there is my heart also. Well, then I will drive you away from people, and you will have not a friend left. No, sir, you can't do that either, for I have a friend in heaven, and you can never separate me from him. I defy you, emperor. There is nothing you can do to really hurt me. See, that is a man who was about to be murdered by a man who had absolute power. But this man, who we will meet in heaven, understood where power genuinely resides. As we come to this grand end of this grand passage, the cathedral of the Christian faith, as many call it, 
beyond the joy of the moment or being encouraged. What is the living Jesus saying to us gathered here? This is when we need to really tune in, by the way. I want to spend a few minutes just talking about a few things. Number one is this. The pain of life, it's real. We must, and we have fought for this in Crothers Creek for years, we must be honest in churches about the garbage of life. No more playing, no more Barbie plastic in church. This is reality, nothing else. But we need to view our pain as we talk about it publicly through the pages of Scripture, the lens of heaven. Chuck Swindoll, that great American pastor who has helped me very much as I've done this series, got it really right, I think, when he wrote these words to many of us suffering today, here and you online. He says, don't assume that your suffering with you, your kids, whatever, is a result of God's punishment. But do expect that when suffering ends, he will actually give you greater joy. Don't assume, he writes, that the Lord has abandoned you. And I, I just got to stop here. I, I, was, um, I was going over my message this week and was praying, but I was actually going over my message and I uttered those words. I don't usually do this here. And I felt so overwhelmed by the Spirit of God to say something. I really believe there's someone here or online, I don't know who you are, that's fine, that honestly believes in their heart that God has abandoned you. I mean, we can all relate to this, but there's someone really who's there. And I want to say as one of God's spokespersons this morning in humility, he speaks right to you now, you are not abandoned. It is not true. Whoever you are, just receive that from God, please. Chuck Swindoll says, do not assume because we have experienced terrible groaning that you're abandoned. But then he says, do confess your fear and doubt and ask him for the strength to press on you don't have. Don't assume that you've been rejected or forsaken by God. Do remain faithful to your duties, even if you must reduce your load for a time being. Very wise advice. Don't throw yourself in times of great pain into more stuff of family and church to avoid the pain. Not good. Don't assume your prayers are not being heard. Do continue praying, even when you don't know what to say. This is a good time to say, Holy Spirit, time to kick in. I have got nothing left. Next thing. Don't assume that your suffering gives you permission to give up. I want to say that again, please. Don't assume that your suffering gives you permission to give up on God, on the church, or on his kingdom. Suffering has always been part of our movement. As I said to one teenager once who said, I think I'm going to walk from the faith, it's too hard. I pulled out the cross and said, did you not get it the first time? Our symbol is a symbol of suffering. But do trust, he writes, that the Lord will magnify his strength through your weakness. I charge you to be honest about our groans and then walk them through biblically. A few other things. I want to say to myself, and our community today, it's very important that we hear what God has said over us one more time. You know, we're not rootless trees like our world is. We're not alone and we're not left to suffer. Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father, is praying for us right now. He is always covering us, always forgiving, always pleading, always dealing with our ungodliness by his holiness. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, intercedes for us. He struggles along with us. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He gives us the power to live a Christian life if, he, if we'd ask. God says to us today, you're called. 
You are foreknown. You're predestined. You're justified. We're glorified. We can never, by the way, lose our salvation. It wasn't up to us in the first place. We are already, past tense, glorified. Nothing can separate any of us from the love of God. Nothing at all. Our identity will never be eroded or taken away, and we are now and forever called one word, saints. We are children of God, and we have real hope. Who can bring a charge against us? No one is stronger than the one that lives within us. And never forget, Because most evangelicals forget to go here. Never forget, it's just not about us. This is one of the most brilliant passages because it reminds us that salvation in its fullest extent isn't just about a new heavens and new earth. God promises us that creation is going to be made right. They're clapping somewhere else, that's good. No, no, think about that. I jokingly said it, I can't wait to meet a dodo bird again. No, uh, no, really. God's going to make things right. All that's been lost. I don't know if dinosaurs, maybe, cool, I don't know. But everything's going to be made right again. And the hope that we have is this, that it's not just about our personal salvation, but all things, all the world and the way it works, everything will be renewed and be brought back. Restoration in the fullest extent will happen again. We as Christians, all right, We must live there. We need to live there. We need to make decisions there. We need to see this as our hope. Our hope now and a grander hope. We can't always live in the paradise of the future, nor can we just live in the now. We live in that tension. But if we as Christians, in the midst of the craziness of our middle class experience, would root our identity here, root our hope here, root our community here, then people again will say, what is up with you people? Ground your life in Romans 8. Nowhere else. Last thought, and then I'm done. I am hoping that we as a community are starting to understand why I've been, begging is a strong word, but I think it's maybe right, begging us as a family to pray. Our vision in this church is to become a regional church of 10,000, meeting the spiritual, emotional, and spiritual needs of people. If you're new today, you can check out why we've said that online. Does, does everyone get it? No, really. If God is the one who foreknows people and, and predestines and justifies and glorifies and, and we're his hands and feet, then God has to do something we can't. And by the way, it's not just for us. If you hang out at Crothers long enough, you'll know we don't think we're the only kids on the street here, Right? We are asking God to do this in every church in Durham. Small, large, in in between. We don't care. But the desperation that I've been trying to express to this community about praying for personal renewal, which is about grounding your identity, corporate revival where we love Jesus in a way we never have, in a way where Jesus shows up and changes us and restores relationships and deals all, and then an awakening where thousands come to Jesus and it's not just we want to be big, but honestly we want to see many come to faith. It's only going to happen if a sovereign God says yes. And the only way we get to wrestle and plead and dialogue with our God is through prayer. I again say to you this morning, whether you've forgotten or given up, please, please go before our God who is love and ask him to cause a renewal and a revival and a genuine awakening in our area. 
He has to do work we can. Yes, we are his hands and feet and he will use us. But he's the one who starts the process, binds the process, and ends the process. Unless God shows up in an unknown way that Canada, by the way, has never experienced, we will never see what we believe to happen, happen. Best words I read this week that I'll end with are from, uh, from a guy who preached during the Victorian area. His name was uh, Charles Spurgeon. Anyone know him? Pretty famous pastor. He was a megachurch pastor at a church of 5,000. He was a famous preacher. And he was a big guy on election. He liked it a lot. He would have a bumper sticker today, election happens, deal with it. I mean, that's sort of what he'd be. But he was deeply pastoral. And his last words on this I read were great. He declared these words, Oh Lord, would you please save the elect? And then would you go elect some more? You got it. So I'd like to end today by praying those words with you as Alan comes up in the community uh, as we respond in song. So uh, join me. Get in a posture where you're ready to respond. Lord, beyond all the controversy on, on this, and, and it's genuinely controversial, and we, we start this conversation with you right now by saying we pray for our unity uh, as Christians, even over genuine disagreements. But, but hear our prayer today. A few things. Number one, I do pray for the many among us, old and young, who are suffering, like really suffering, spiritual, emotional, mental, sexual. And Lord, you know, churchy answers just don't work anymore. And so I'm asking genuinely, and we are, Lord, I pray that you'd speak into their groaning and pain and give them some hope and some context. We pray right now, and we do this sincerely, that Spirit of God, you would come on them and pray for them in ways they cannot pray. We pray you'd give them strength that is unnatural, and we pray that through their pain, you'd be glorified and, and things would happen. Lord, just, we, we need miracles because we live in some really tough places in our families. So pray in that, first of all. Second of all, I pray for myself and all my family and friends here. Oh, good prayer. Hmm. Please root us in your truth about us. We're so distracted, so uh, everywhere but your word half the time, including me, man. So I pray this today. Lord, may the truth spoken over us, that there's no condemnation, that we're owned, that we're loved, that we're called. Root this in us in a way I don't even know how to use in words, but I'm just asking you to do this. Give security in this church. Give intimacy in this church. Give identity in this church that goes deeper than anything that we can invent. And lastly, I pray uh, in Jesus' name that you, holy God, who is sovereign, would show up in Durham and do something we have never seen. And again, I pray this in humility. I don't want a bigger church. I want people to have life. So we pray for us and our friends and our neighbors and our enemies and everyone in this area, because this is where we are, that you sovereignly would call people, justify people. God, save the elect and elect some more is a great prayer. Please, we're asking for something we've never seen in our area. Our world needs to know that there's a God left. So we're asking you to move. Yeah, we ask this in the name of the Father who called us, in the name of the Son who died for us and prays for us, in the name of the Spirit who groans with us and seals us and will resurrect us one day. And all of God's people said,
Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, carotherscreek.ca.